Let's pray, and then we'll grab our Bibles, and we'll go to Exodus chapter 5. God, thank you for this gathering. Thank you for Spark. I bless you for all the men and the women and the children, for everybody who's gathered into this place, to bind our hearts and our souls together, to worship you, to honor you, to learn and to grow, and to bless each other by our presence, and to be blessed by theirs. And as we dig into your word, and hear a little bit more of you speaking to us through your word and through these stories. May our hearts truly be open, and may our lives truly be transformed because of what you've written down for us. And may we dig in deep, engage critically, wrestle sincerely with all that you have for us. And may we recognize that the reading of your word And this wrestling is truly a sacred and holy moment. It's a holy endeavor. And may we embrace it fully and completely. And we pray in your name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. (laughs) Exodus chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, The people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they may keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go out and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get up, now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you, Moses and Aaron. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought up? <laughs> I love this. Why have you brought trouble 
on this people. Is this why you sent me ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name? He has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Oh, how many of you feel like that sometimes? I mean, are you, are you serious? Okay, you have a new somebody who's come along, and they said, I'm here to make things better, and they only get worse. And like, okay, just go away. Things were a lot better before you even showed up. Thank you for your help, but no, thank you. I do not need your help. Okay, so as we've done before, let's dig in, and let's get a feel for what's going on, and then I'll point out some things that I think are important for this passage uh, in, in this chapter. There are two things that I'm going to focus in on. There's a whole bunch there, but there's two specific things. The first thing is this idea of straw, which has made its way actually into our popular culture. There's some memes out there, bricks without straw, and I'll show you one of those. Uh, But what is this whole straw thing, and why is that so important? And especially for those of us who don't make bricks every day, I imagine, we're trying to figure out what really is the big deal. And as the Bible has... Uh, frequently done in the past and will frequently do in the future, straw is not just straw. There are symbols, there's images, there's pictures, there's metaphors, there's deeper meanings that this may actually have for the passage that's at hand. And the second thing that I want to point out is this idea that Pharaoh says they are lazy, which I'm sure you have said about somebody or somebody has said about you at some particular point. So what are these two things about straw? and you are lazy. And again, there's a whole bunch of things in there. For example, uh, many people miss the fact that the original, the original request to Pharaoh is just let us go into the wilderness so that we can have a festival for three days to God. It wasn't let my people go. It was let them go have a festival, celebration, and Pharaoh wasn't even willing to do that particular piece. So that's something to study and to discover, like what is that all about? But we'll focus in on the straw and the lazy. I don't know if you've ever thought or considered what brick making looks like or feels like, but the Biblical Archaeology Society, and you can actually look this up yourself, as well as other archaeological institutions have actually gone and done the physical, literal work of mud brick uh, making to try to figure out what was this like. And this is really important to engage in the story. It's not just a conceptual, abstract thing that you're thinking about. This is real labor. If you've ever actually dug through mud and had to carry water and stomp in it and ferment it and then form it and then bake it. This is extreme labor. And so a couple of things to point out just so that you can get a feel for what's really going on in this passage and why Pharaoh's statement and the Israelites' outcry uh, is so great. You want to feel what's going on here. The first is it actually takes four days for the mud and the water to get to a consistency or to get to a a certain mixture in order for it to be ready for even putting into the molds. And you can see here, I I can imagine, think about this for a second, in a pit in full mud with water stomping for four days straight, 12 hours a day. Uh, After the kneading happens, you have to put that into mold, uh, certain molds. And those... um, pits are going to require a lot of water. So archaeologists have suggested that most of the brick making is actually happening very near pools of water off of the Nile tributaries, etc. But even though it's located closely, you're still going to have to haul a bunch of water. How many of you have carried water home from the store? And consider the hard labor and the hard work that this is going to require. So they're having to make sure that there's enough water over a period of four days for needing that. 
After that, uh, you're going to place them into the molds. And this is not terribly dissimilar from the molds that we have actually found and found in inscriptions and writings, that these little wooden cases and bricks at about, you know, this particular size. Now, the Biblical Archaeology Society, when they did this, actually, as a test, made some bricks without straw, and they discovered that those particular bricks were extremely brittle, fragile. They broke apart easily. They, didn't, they weren't bound together. They did not have the substance enough to stay strong and to stay bound together. Uh, so they made a couple of those as an example. Um, and then, if you calculate how many bricks this particular team could make, over a two-day period, remember, four days, but then now taking all that mud, putting them in the bricks, and letting them bake out into the sun. Their quota for this small little team was 2,000 bricks. Now think about that number for a second. A small little team from the Biblical Archaeology Society, 2,000 bricks. I mean, I didn't even think about this until I started doing this research. That's a lot of bricks. I mean, that's a ton of bricks. If... If you think about it, though, consider all of the building structures that existed out in Egypt, in ancient Egypt, the things that you can go and discover. Uh, this particular um, pyramid, called the Saqqara Pyramid, uh, is made up of over tens of millions. I couldn't actually find the original number, but tens of millions of bricks. So you can imagine if you have hundreds of thousands of people working on, I mean, this is what is building up Egyptian civilization. This is one of the fundamental industries for making the buildings, the structures, the administrative centers, etc. And in fact, some commentators regarding this particular passage and the bricks that they were making are saying exactly that. They are saying that what the Israelites are doing is actually building administrative centers, palaces, homes, ranches, whatever you want to call them, for the upper-class aristocracy of the Egyptian people. Remember, they are the slaves. So you're working in this mud, hours and hours on end, under the hot sun, carrying water, and you're making it for the people who live in these particular palaces. I share all this to just give you a sense of what kind of labor, what kind of hard work this is. And so later on, when it gets even harder, you start to have a real sense of the desperation that's happening to the Israelites. You're making us do this without straw. So all of that that we've shared, there's some actual writings that you can look up uh, regarding what was the reputation or what was the feeling or the sense of these particular people. In a piece of writing entitled The Satire of the Trades, we find this particular passage. The brick person is dirtier than vines or pigs from treading under his mud. His clothes are stiff with clay. His leather belt is going to ruin. Leather belt going to ruin. Enter, entering into the wind, he is miserable. His sides ache, since he must be outside in a treacherous wind. His arms are destroyed with technical work. What he eats is the bread of his fingers, and he washes himself only once a season. He is simply wretched through and through. Do you start to get a feeling and a sense of what these Israelites are, are under? What kind of oppression, what kind of hard work they are under? And when you take a look at not only how it looks today, but how it looked back then, you definitely get a feel and a sense for this is hard and harsh labor. 12 hours a day, however many hours the sun is up, 2,000 bricks. 
um, a day, every two days, a thousand bricks per person. Can you imagine what your body, what kind of toll that is going to take upon you? And then to add to that, the importance of straw and the idea that straw is being taken away. Now, what exactly is straw? Well, we have a couple, <coughs> excuse me, we have a couple inscriptions, first of all, that substantiate the numbers that Biblical Archaeology Society had. One of them, entitled the Leather Roll of 1274, dated to somewhere around 1279 B.C., states that uh, this guy, uh, one of the 40 overseers of Ramses II, failed to deliver his quota of 2,000 bricks because the slaves could not gather the required amount of straw. So we have a piece of archaeological evidence that suggests that this was actually a fairly well-known idea. Number one, that straw was absolutely critical to this mud brick, mud brick making. And number two, according to this piece, that the straw at times was not available and as a result of that was diminishing the amount of output. Okay, what is the straw? Why is this important and why is this in the passage? There's a couple things that I'd like to point out. Number one, it is the only organic material in the mud brick making. It's the only organic. We have water, you have the mud, you have the soil, etc. But straw is the only piece of organic material that is there. The second thing is that like if you know uh, modern-day construction, like rebar in cement, straw acts as a binding agent. Uh, straw acts as a, uh, some sort of infrastructure to make sure that the mud is kept together, so it's a part of a strengthening piece. Um, and then, as a result of its organic nature, there is an acid that is produced from the straw that actually makes the mud itself much harder, much stronger. There was a, one more piece here, Papyrus Anastasi, that said, there are no men here to make bricks and no straw in the district either. So we have several pieces of archaeological evidence that suggest that this has happened before, not just in our book of Exodus. This is so much um, part of our culture that I've even found a couple memes, a couple ideas that exist on the internet and posters and inspirational posters, I suppose, that you can't make bricks without straw, these little proverbs. What is this all about? If straw is the only piece of organic material and it's a binding agent, it's a strengthening agent, um, one of the potential pictures, if you look at Pharaoh and what he's doing by removing the straw or by saying this is a very difficult task um, and I'm going to make it even harder for you by not providing the straw for you, and the absence of the straw causes the substance, the brick, the mud, to be weak, to crumble, to not be together. I would suggest to you that one of the potential meanings is that this is exactly the strategy of Pharaoh, that the absence of the straw is actually going to be analogous, is going to be metaphorical to what Pharaoh is ultimately going to try to do to the people. Separate them. Keep them from being strong. Keep them from being bound together. Um, straw may be, in this particular passage, symbolic of what Pharaoh is trying and attempting to do to Moses and to the Israelites. By the absence or the removal of that straw, he's trying to make sure that the Israelites are stay, stay weak. Remember, the whole endeavor of Pharaoh by putting them under slavery is fearful of their numbers. They might rise up against me. Uh, th they are growing in numbers and they're growing in strength. And so by removing the straw, that might be a biblical picture metaphor by saying, to say, we want to weaken these people. Question, do you have anybody in your life who's trying to do that to you? 
Do you have anybody in your life who's trying to weaken who you are? Keep things from you that will ultimately compromise your integrity, compromise your strength, compromise the wholeness of who you are. Do you have somebody who's trying to treat you like a brick without straw and keep that straw from you? Again, these are some of the lessons or some of the pictures or the images that we can walk away from. And ultimately, Pharaoh's strategy, as uh, Nahum Sarna puts it, the ho- his whole strategy is to demoralize these people, which ultimately happens. He's trying to remove any sense of hope, any sense of uh, strength within them. He's trying to demoralize them. And again, this is a beautiful picture of the human behavior and activity I think all of us face at one particular time. And why does that happen? His power is being threatened. He's the king. He's the head of the household. And here are some people that are starting to push in a little bit on his power and authority. And as soon as he gets threatened, he wants to immediately turn that around and make your life miserable and make you weak. Challenge your integrity. This is a great human lesson for people that are in power. So number one, the straw. It may simply be that what is attempting to be happening, what is attempting to happen here through Pharaoh's actions, is to weaken the people. And I can imagine all of us at one particular point feel that someone somewhere along the way of our life is attempting to try to weaken us by the things that they say or the things that they don't say. But then it gets really real. Pharaoh, who instituted the decree himself, who, by the way, knows exactly what's going to happen. He's no dummy. He knows how bricks are made. He knows how the ingredients are, how critical they are. And he knows that this is hard work. He's living most likely in a palace built by the hard labor of the Israelites. And they come to him and say, what are you doing? It's because of you that things are now getting more difficult. And now you're placing upon us the same requirements of quota, yet making things more difficult. What are you doing? And what is Pharaoh's response? Does he take responsibility? Oh, gee, I'm so sorry about that. He calls them out and says, you are lazy. How does this compute? I mean, honestly, if you think about this critically, he knows exactly what he's doing, and yet he says, you're lazy. Uh, It happens twice, not only in verse 8, but it happens later on in in verses 15 to 18. The Israelites come, they make this complaint, make bricks, etc., etc., and Pharaoh says, lazy, that is what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, get to Commentators, both historical and contemporary, have made the observation that Pharaoh's ultimate complaint against the people or his response to the people's complaint against him is to do essentially a character assassination. Rather than objectively watching and recognizing what's really going on and seeing how you and I and we together can make things better, he ultimately performs what is known in social psychological circles, what I will call a fundamental attribution error. Now, what is a fundamental attribution error? Uh, It's also known as correspondence bias. Patrick Lencioni, who's a leadership and management guru, 
has written this in his book, The Advantage. At the heart of the fundamental attribution error is the tendency of human beings to attribute the negative or frustrating behaviors of their colleagues to their intentions and personalities while attributing their own negative or frustrating behaviors to environmental factors. Did you catch that? Here's a couple examples of the fundamental attribution error that I think Pharaoh performs here. I searched on the internet, the joys of parenting. The joys of parenting. This is the first image that came up. <clears throat> the fundamental attribution error works like this. You're in the grocery store or at the library or at the school, and that child, not yours, somebody else's child acts up or is really out of control or is really disrespectful and behaving poorly. And you think in your mind, what is wrong with those parents? Your child does the exact same thing, and you say, what is wrong with this child? Come on, how many of you ever done this? Let's just be honest. Um, how many of you have been in a work situation or in an employment situation, and there is a coworker who is truly jacking things up for you, making things difficult, and your immediate thought is something is really wrong with them. They need psychiatric care, they need therapy, they need something, they need some sort of help. An attribution of their character, an attribution of their integrity, fundamentally against them. But if I were to then do the exact same thing, it's because of my boss, because of, well, that coworker, because of all sorts of other external factors. When I look at somebody else, I attribute their misbehavior, their delinquency to something intrinsic to them. But when I look at me, I contribute any of my misbehavior or delinquency to my environmental factors. How many of you have been on the road and go, that driver is nuts! And then how many of you have cut somebody off and go, oh, I, well, if it wasn't for the dog and then, the, and then I was trying to do this, and just leave me alone. <laughs> you have performed the fundamental attribution error. Somebody else is driving because they clearly have no clue what they're doing. I cut somebody else off because, well, the radio this, or I dropped my coffee, or I, my boss yelled at me. Environmental factors. Are you with me? Now let's get real. The fundamental attribution error works even in the most intimate of relationships. Where we start to see the misbehavior or the dysfunction of somebody else and we, we begin to attribute that person, my spouse, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my child, oh my gosh, they, something is clearly wrong with them. But if I were to then look at my own behavior, I would attribute it to Something is wrong with them, which is causing me to behave in this particular way. We perform this all the time. That we make negative attributions towards somebody's character, attitude. But when, it's when it comes to us, it's clearly because of environmental factors. Let's get really real. That party over there, the reason why they're voting the way that they're voting the reason why they clearly see things the way that they see things, the reason why they're arguing is because they are so missing it. They, something is clearly wrong. They must hate America. How many of you have heard this? This is the fundamental attribution error. That somebody else's behavior is as a result of their character deficiency. But our own 
misbehavior is a result of environmental factors. I consider this to be really, really important when we start to talk about justice issues and poverty and prostitution and slavery. Do you know the number of conversations that I've had that insinuate that the reason why people are homeless and the reason why people are poor and the reason why people are in jail and the reason why people are is because there must be something wrong with them. But if I were to be the one in jail or if I were to be the one that had the poverty or if I were to be the one that injustice happened to, then it was clearly because of something outside of who I am. We perform this all the time, even when it comes to ministry, even when it comes to sins that we see. I see this all the time. Why is it that the fundamental, the most immediate response and reaction is that when we see somebody out there, we immediately attribute it to their character? Oh, the reason why they're begging on the street, I mean, there must have been, they must have done something to deserve this. Rather than taking in a holistic picture of the environmental factors of all the complexities, this is the fundamental attribution error that Pharaoh imposes, and it screams off the page. Rather than looking at the circumstances, the realities that are set before him, you are lazy. You are lazy. It's an attack on their character and who they are. By the way, the more and more power gets threatened with Pharaoh, the more and more he blames the more and more he pushes, the more and more he puts. Uh, and for those of you who are like math geeks, here we go. So this is, <clears throat> just in case anybody needed a chart, x-axis being the loss of power, y-axis being blame, and the more that there's a loss of power, the more the blame comes. In fact, you could use this to do some evaluation. The more and more you see people blame, the more and more that person who's doing the blaming might be feeling a sense of a loss of power. And this is exactly what's happening with Pharaoh. So the question is, the question is, will we start to recognize and see that everything around us, all the dysfunctions, all the times when things are getting worse, more difficult, more challenging, uh, when things are hard, when things are dysfunctional, when injustice is happening, when there's a disparity of wealth, poverty, all of these things, ailments that all of us are having to deal with, dysfunctions and challenges between parents and children, dysfunctions and challenges in marriages, dysfunctions and challenges in work, etc., etc. When we start to face all of these things, would it be helpful to just recognize that, the, that Pharaoh's fundamental sin, the thing that makes things really difficult, is that he ignores all of the environmental factors, he ignores anything external, and he immediately goes to the fundamental attribution error, which is to say, you are lazy. It's a character assassination upon the people. And could we learn that all of us at times, Pharaoh being this model or this metaphor for the behaviors that all of us do at times, all of us feel at some particular moments in our lives that our power is being threatened or our security is being threatened or whatever, and as a result, we are going to have to put blame more and more on that other party. And would it be helpful for us to just call it out, recognize that this is what's going on, and to learn that there's a different way of redeeming? Um, a quote that I think is helpful to sum it up, when you blame others, you give up your power to change. 
You give up your power to change. And this is what Pharaoh's doing. He's not changing. Remember our message from last week. He's not going to have a change of heart. He's only going to get more and more solidified, more and more strong in his resolve to hate his, the Israelites. And so we enter into this blame cycle. Pharaoh, ultimately, will not work with environmental factors, taking into consideration all of these things, and he immediately blames the Israelites. You are lazy. And the thing about this, if you read the passage carefully, as we did, and many of you laughed as we started getting to the rest of the passages, what do these people do? They then continue that cycle. And the Israelite foremen, as a result of receiving this blame from Pharaoh, continue this blame right on to Moses and Aaron. (laughs) And it's so brilliant. Moses and Aaron don't even respond. They just simply say, God, that was your problem. Why are you doing this? This is what's happening, and it all begins. It all begins when Pharaoh recognizes that things are pressing in upon his power, and as a result of that threat, he's going to immediately attack character, who you are. You are lazy. I love this little Peanuts cartoon. Why are you always so anxious to criticize me, says Linus, Lucy? I just think I have a knack for seeing other people's faults. What about your own faults? I have a knack for overlooking them. <clears throat> so, do we all do this? Yes. Every single one of us do this. You, you're going to be in that car. You're going to be lying in bed next to your spouse. You're going to be working with your children. You're going to be at that place. You're going to be there. What's the solution? What's the answer? How do you respond? I love the scriptures, and I love who God is because he responds to this little blame cycle in a brilliant way, which I think is written about in some of these other leadership books. Jim Collins, who's written Good to Great, talks about a concept known as the window in the mirror. The window in the mirror is the concept and the idea that when things aren't going right, do you, A, look out the window and blame the people, or do you, B, look in the mirror and look upon yourself and say, what can I do? Now, what's important about this is not to take on blame. It is the point of responsibility. How can I face this dysfunction or face this thing with me doing something in response that I can be productive, helpful, additive, add value, etc.? Window, mirror. The fundamental attribution error, window. Things are dysfunctional, things are bad, things are not working the way they are, I immediately look out the window and I point at you and I say, you, you must be lazy. Well, you must not understand. Well, you must not be caring. Well, you must not be, you must not be, you must not be, you must not be. Maybe a more helpful response is to then hold up the mirror and say, what could I do in response to this that would help to bring hope, redemption, love, salvation to whatever the circumstances? And I love it. We didn't read chapter 6, verse 1, but listen carefully. Because chapter 5 is all about this blame cycle. Chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, after Moses just complained to the Lord, are you with me? Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Pharaoh blames 
the Israelites. The Israelites blame Moses and Aaron. Aaron blames God. God says, okay, no more window. Let's look in the mirror. And he comes along and he says, no more blame cycle. It's not about blame. And if we keep pushing this off to you, 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 we're never going to get anywhere. He says, look what I'm going to do through you, Moses. Look what I'm going to do in and through you. Look what I'm going to do through Pharaoh. And God's fundamental response to all of this dysfunction, he breaks the cycle of blame with a simple declaration, see what I will do. I am going to do something in this. I will act. I will take it upon myself as a responsible party to do something in response to this dysfunction. In other words, God held up a mirror. And so rather than taking a look at all of these things and pointing out the window or pointing to them and saying that this is the problem, which, by the way, is the activity of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, remember, is the bad guy. Maybe we should just dismiss all of that and say, how can we respond in such a way that would bring love and hope? In your marriage, rather than pointing the finger, maybe holding up a mirror and saying, what can I do? How can I think differently? What healing can I take place here? What understanding could I draw here? At work, what new systems could I put in place? What new boundaries? What new ways of thinking about communication could I do? In justice work, in poverty work, rather than just simply blaming somebody who's out on the street, what kind of ways am I contributing or not contributing to the dysfunctions of our e economics, of our system, that is causing all of this to happen, or at least adding to it? When it comes to dysfunctional relationships, politics, racism, all of these things, what could I do here that could hopefully help to bring back and put in the straw that was so taken away? Okay, three things that we, I think we could take away from this. Number one, believe in God. I know it's a nice, simple, pithy way of saying it, but ultimately that's what God is saying. Trust me that I'm going to do something here. So what could you do in your dysfunction, in, in the challenges that you face, in the problems that you're in? Believe that God is going to do something in and through. The second possibility is behave like God. And this is the thing that I think is often missed. We certainly believe in God, and we declare more and more that we believe in God. But sometimes the, the whole narrative is there for us to actually behave like him. And just like God took it upon himself to initiate a response, maybe each and every one of us could take it upon ourselves to respond in such a way that would bring that hope and bring that love and bring redemption to whatever situation or dysfunction we find ourselves in. And the third, be strengthened by God. Just like the straw was left out and made things difficult, or just like the straw is the binding agent, um, and just like straw is the only organic material in that brick, <clears throat> my hope and my prayer, through our community and through all of us together, we are strengthened by the very presence of God in our lives, by the very presence of our spiritual disciplines and connecting and covenanting and relating with God. And the more and more that we do that, the more and more we are strengthened so that we can hold up that mirror and figure out what we can do in response.
Lord, thank you for this amazing passage and for our church. We ask for your presence to be in and among us. And I pray, God, that as we are so tempted all the time to attribute negatively to other people, which is so the action of Pharaoh, help us, Lord, to be more like you. To be strengthened first and foremost by you, and then speak and respond into this world as you would respond, with your power, with your spirit, with your love. I pray in your name. Amen.